We've been working through uh, a series on prayer, using the Lord's Prayer, or really historically called the High Priestly Prayer of Jesus in John chapter 17. Our series has been titled Morning and Evening, and truly whether we actually begin as a result of perhaps this series, um, to pray every morning and evening is not as important as how uh, maybe we just consider the way we start every day and end every day. Um, reflecting on perhaps how we set our minds every day. Where we set our minds. What sets our minds every morning and what sets our minds every evening. And I've said it before, I'll say it again. I am convinced unless we set our minds on the things that are above through prayer, our minds will naturally be set below by life. Now, the question for all of us is not, do I pray every morning, do I pray every evening, but am I, not someone else, but am I as an individual able or even willing or perhaps even desiring to stop and to be still with God for any amount of time in prayer? Henry David Thoreau, so here's the English teacher coming out in me, great romantic, not romance, literature romantic writer. He wrote, among other things, um, this, where he said, most men live lives of quiet desperation, which is not a real good picture of the world. And what he means is that, in his observation, most people don't really live at all because they are very busy filling their lives or filling that void that even Solomon in Ecclesiastes tried to fill with every sort of thing they can find in the world. That they're desperately seeking something, desperately seeking contentment, desperately seeking perhaps joy. Their lives are out of order. Psalm 46, which is a very well-known psalm, and it's well-known because of a brief phrase near the end of it, which says, Be still and know I am God. I have that on a nice placard on my wall. Perhaps you do or you've seen others that do. Be still and know I am God. And the word for still is, um, it means a lot of things, but in this case, in the Hebrew, it it means to slacken or to let down or to cease fighting, literally to stop fighting, which makes sense because as you read the psalm, you see it's full of a lot of turmoil, a lot of chaos, even war. And in the midst of that, or in response to that, the psalmist says to be still, to stop fighting, and to ultimately acknowledge and trust in God. Now Christians, I think, often interpret that command to be still as just to be quiet in God's presence, which isn't a bad thing. We can become chatty Cathy oftentimes and not actually sit just quietly with the Lord and listen perhaps to the Lord. Um, but in this case, I think quietness is helpful, but really this is more of a, of a call to cease or stop frantic activity, to um, to slow down, to stop, to be still. Quit moving. Quit, quit being like the Martha and sit at the Lord's feet like Mary. Now, being still requires a few things because when you stop fighting, especially in battle, you are releasing control. It feels very risky. It feels very unproductive. But it requires you to surrender some control, surrender the moment, if you will, and actually look and listen for the Lord's help. I think all of us struggle to be still. Maybe there's a few of us that don't. Um, it reminds me, um, like, when I would go into an English class and I would say, hey, we're going to study, study Shakespeare. Out of 150 students, there was like two that were really excited about that, right? I think the same might be about prayer. Like, we're going to have a series on prayer. We're going to have a prayer evening. I think there's a handful of people that get excited about that and others recognize that that muscle is so weak, perhaps it's not something they want to engage in or listen to. 
We struggle to be still. We struggle to be still in life. We struggle to be still with God in prayer. And by that, what I really mean to say is what the psalmist says, is that we struggle to actually not fight. And I don't mean fight with one another. I mean, we, we fight to get ahead. Sometimes we're fighting to get by. Sometimes we're fighting to get our way. But it's interesting, Jesus, on this night, in the context of John 17, later in his actions as well, we see Jesus, who is in the greatest fight of them all, a cosmic battle of good versus evil. Jesus models what it means to actually be still and to not fight. To fully entrust himself to God in the midst of a battle. The last thing that we actually think we should do, right? When we see that there's a battle going on, we feel like we got to defend, we feel like we got to attack, we feel like we got to move. But Jesus is just still. This is an evening where one of his closest friends, and I think thinking of Judas as a close friend is kind of weird, but that's how you need to think about it, right? One of his closest friends who betrays him with a kiss is going to betray him. Jesus knows this. Where soldiers are gathering to arrest him. Where religious leaders that he is called to respect and even does in the false trial they put him up in, they're plotting to kill him. And yet he decides to gather with his disciples and to be still and to be in God's presence. That, he prays, should challenge us, but I think what he prays should actually convict us. So our text this morning in John 13, John 17, verses 13 um, through 17, we see Jesus pray about something that you may not think of when we um, read this, and that is joy. Praying for joy. Now, it's interesting. Um, there are many today who talk about things like fighting for joy. Right? We need to fight for joy. Um, and what I see people like, what that appears to mean is that they have determined something that they believe if they get will bring joy to their lives. And so they fight to get it. And it could be lots of things. It could be a job. It could be a certain level of financial security. It could be a certain kind of recreational thing. It could be a certain kind of experience for your family or whatever. And so they fight and fight and fight. I'm going to fight for the joy. I'm going to get this thing. And they're either fighting to get that thing they think is going to bring them joy or they're fighting really hard to hold on that thing that they think is bringing them joy that they don't want to lose. Seems like we're always fighting for something. And while many of these things are good, there's nothing wrong with many of those things. I find that a lot of the things that we say, this thing brings me joy, ends up becoming an idol to replace God as the true source of joy. And that's what good things can often do. I like what uh, Keller wrote. Um, I don't know where he wrote this. But he said, the essence of sin is not wanting things that are bad, it's wanting things too badly. Many of the best things in life, the good things that God has given us, become those things that we basically seek hope and joy and security. All the things that God himself was the only one to provide us, we go to for those things. And so, this morning, whatever battle you find yourself in right now, I'd like all of us to consider just being still, to lay down your arms, to stop fighting for that thing you think you want, that thing you think you need, that thing you believe is going to give you joy, and perhaps consider praying for joy, which doesn't mean praying for that thing, and we'll explain that, but looking to the true source of joy. Let's look at John 17, 13 to 17. Here's what Jesus continues to pray with his disciples listening there with him. He says, but now I'm coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they, these disciples, may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. 
I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Okay. Let's spend some time on verse 13 here. Did you know that one of God's most ignored attributes is joy? If we were to ask you, like, tell me what God is like, I'm not sure joy would be in the top ten. Just because it doesn't come to mind. The Old Testament, though, frequently speaks about God as a being of joy. The Bible talks about the delight of the Lord, the pleasures of the Lord, even the joy of the Lord, which is supposed to be our strength. Joy. If the Lord is perfect, the most perfect of all beings, then every aspect you think of, whether it be love or justice or mercy or grace or wisdom or joy, is found in God. He is a joyful being. And we have interesting views of joy. We kind of, if someone says you're joyful or not joyful, we kind of have this Pollyanna skippity doo dah joy idea that I think is a little less than what we're talking about, maybe a lot less. See, there's joy that God gives us, right? We talk about the joy God gives. That's not what I'm talking about. The only reason God is able to give joy to someone is it's because he possesses a joy, perfectly so. Jesus, though, again, we wouldn't think this way, was the most joyful person that ever walked the face of the planet. Why is that? Well, he's the Son of God. God in flesh, in all his perfection. And so, Jesus was joyful. He actually speaks quite a bit about joy, but... The Messiah, the anointed one of God, who was to come and be the Savior and the King and fulfill all these things, right? Even in Isaiah 61, which is one of the great messianic prophecy passages of the prophet Isaiah. And that's the passage that begins with the idea of, I've been anointed by the Spirit to bring good news. And he starts laying out all these things that are coming as a result of this good news, who bring freedom to the captives and all these things. And one of the things he says is the oil of gladness to those who are mourning. And the word gladness there is actually more frequently translated as joy. The oil of joy. What that seems to imply is that one of the purposes of salvation, not the only purpose, but certainly one of the most important purposes was to bring joy. So it follows that Jesus was quite joyful. In Hebrews it tells us that he endured the cross for what? The joy set before him. That he was in pursuit of a joy, ultimately the redemption of his people. Interestingly, thinking about joy as one of the main purposes of salvation, you're probably familiar with the parable of the talents that Jesus taught. That's the parable where a master gives each three, I think, particular servants different talents. One, I believe, five, one, two, and one, one. And he says, okay, I'm going to leave for a long time, and I want you to manage these talents. And so they each manage them differently. The first two manage them well and reproduce what they've been given, and the last does, hides it in a hole because he's afraid and does nothing. And when he returns, the master says something. We remember the first part that he says frequently. Well done, good and faithful servant, right? Does anyone remember the second part? The second part, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. Is that what we think of when we think of salvation, when the return of Christ, that we get to enter into his joy, we can experience joy? Should we not be praying more for joy? Jesus, in his own prayer, prays about joy. Prior to his prayer, in Matthew 15, 11, he said, speaking to his disciples on the same night, because John 13 to basically 17 actually even into 18, is still almost the same evening. 
says, these things I've spoken to you, this is after teaching them many things, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Jesus says, this is, this is why I'm speaking to you, that you will have joy. And here in this verse, in verse 13 of John 17, he says, these, uh, he prays that his joy would be in his disciples, that my joy will be fulfilled in them. So you go, well, what was the source of Jesus' joy? What was the thing that, that inspired his joy? Now, the truth is, you can discover what someone's joy is by what they give to others. What I mean, you're probably familiar with that um, Marie Kondo, is that her name? The Sparks Joy chick, right? What sparks your joy? And you go through like all the junk in your house and the junk that in sparks joy you keep and the stuff that like, I guess, doesn't spark joy. I don't even know what that means other than I guess you get tickles and tingles when you look at the dirty shirt that you wore to prom or whatever, something. I'm not sure how that works. But what I do know is that when I'm joyful about something, whether it's a food whether it's a Star Wars movie coming out this December, it's going to be the greatest movie ever made, whether it's uh, something wonderful that we would agree, or whatever, I want to share it. I want to give it. Oh, you got to see this. you got to eat this. you got to do this. Like that's, that's naturally what it is. So you ask yourself, what did Jesus devote himself to giving? Other than his life other than his sacrifice, right? What was he giving these disciples? He's already told us. I think it's in up here. Let's see. Yeah, in the same prayer. I gave them the words you gave me. In many ways, like he could have said all these things. I gave them your love, which in some sense he says. But this is what he prays. I gave them your words. I would argue that was the most important thing to Jesus. And it was the most important thing to Jesus because it was, in many ways, the source of joy. Now, he said earlier in John 12, same book or same gospel, the kinds of words he was given. I've not spoken of my own authority, but the Father sent me, has himself given me a new commandment, and he's told me what to say and what to speak. So he was devoted to giving God's words to his people. And now in John 15, what we already saw, in John 17, 13, which we're reading now, he connects the speaking of God's words with their joy. He says, I've given these, I've spoken these, I've taught these, so that you will have joy. The source of Jesus' joy is God's word. Now, imagine how that might affect how you approach Scripture. That might affect how you open, like, why would I read my Bible? There are some good answers. Oh, to learn God's will. To understand the future. To understand and remember the past. But what if I told you that one of the primary reasons we read Scripture is to find joy? Now, let's take it a step further. Jesus has already said in John 17, 3, <clears throat> he said, this is eternal life, that you know God. Which tells you that, okay, knowing God and eternal life somehow connected, and we're tempted to go like, know about God, know, know things and facts and information about God, or actually know God, and we've already established earlier that, it's, well, it's not intellectually knowing or assenting to things about God, it's actually spiritually and relationally being in Christ and, and having a relationship with Christ, through Christ, by Christ. It's not something we manufacture. It's something God in many ways creates for us. He makes dead men alive. He makes blind men to see. And so you go, well, how, do I, how does someone know if they know God? What's the test? What's the test for myself? What's the test for others? Not that I think you should be testing others, because Paul says, examine yourself, not examine everybody else. But how do we know if we know God? 
Here's the crazy thing. John, in his epistles, tells us. In the second chapter, he says, uses big words that we'll skip over, but he is the propitiation of our sins, not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. The only way you're going to get back to the Father. But he says, and by this we know that we've come to know him. Okay, John's so direct. If we keep his commandments. So he's connecting knowing God to his word. And he goes further. Whoever says I know him but doesn't keep his commandments is a liar. The truth's not in him. But whatever keeps his word, what? In him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. So what you see is this kind of crazy thing, right? Let me just bring it all back to you. John, in his epistles, is making a connection between relationship with God and obedience. Obedience doesn't create relationship. Obedience doesn't earn you relationship. It's just that characterizes relationship. Like obedience and relationship goes together. Then what does Jesus put together? He puts together obedience and joy. Right? These things I've spoken to you that your joy may be in you, that your joy may be full. He just said, I gave you these commands so that your joy may be made full. So obedience and relationship with God and His Word all works together to generate Joy. Joy is found in knowing God through God's Word. And again, if I asked you why would you read your Bible, I'm not sure to find and experience joy would be our natural answer. And why is that? Why is that so hard to believe? Because it is. The enemy doesn't want you to believe this. The world doesn't want you to believe this. The flesh doesn't want you to believe this. And I don't think it's um, a surprise, or it shouldn't surprise us, that the first temptation in the garden was a challenge to the truth of God's Word. But isn't that what the enemy did? What did he say? Don't eat that, because that will kill you? <laughs> no, 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 no. No, that's not true. God's holding out on you. Obeying His Word, listening to His Word, isn't where life is. Life is found over here. Joy is found over here, not with God and obeying His Word. That's the original sin. The original temptation. You see, we don't struggle with disobedience as much as we really are struggling with disbelief that God's Word is good. That God's word is the source of joy. We struggle to believe that it actually will produce joy versus rob us of it. Now, I think one of the reasons why we struggle is because we are surrounded by a majority of people, i.e. the world, that hates God's word. That tells you joy is found in all kinds of other places. And this is Interesting why Jesus prays in verse 14. I've given them your word. And what's the next thing he says? Like the next thing. And the world has hated them. Because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. You see, there's a cost to finding joy in God's word through obedience. While it will generate a joy it will also generate a level of hatred. See, the world hates the Word of God. It's the last place that they will look for joy or that they believe. It's very black and white in a very gray world. It's very authoritative. And it's very exclusive. Exclusive. We don't like that. But Jesus makes many exclusive truth claims, as does the rest of the Scriptures. It's interesting, in view of his approaching crucifixion, he taught 
earlier, right before this prayer about the world. I don't have it on there. In John, oh yeah, I do, 15, boom. I had 16 written here, which was wrong. He said this, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. And many people are like, the world didn't hate Jesus. And all you got to do is go, really? And it seemed like there was a lot of people involved in his death. He said, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you're not of the world, I chose you out of the world. Therefore, the world hates you. Well, how do you know if you're not of the world? You're living differently than them. Well, how are you living differently? According to his word and not the words of the world. It's actually quite simple. And they're hateful towards that. These are Jesus' own words. He tells us in the last days, right? And this is in Timothy. Um, that people will seek out teachers to suit their own passions. So what does that mean? They will look for other words to make them happy other than God. That's what that's talking about. And it's tempting for all of us to go, yeah, those words sound pretty good compared to this. And we start to follow after that. And part of the pressure is just wanting the approval of the world, wanting to be part of the swim, wanting to be included, wanting to not be marginalized. I want to be like the world. I want them to approve of me. And Jesus himself warned us. He says, be careful when everyone thinks awesome of you. That's not a good sign. Because they killed all the prophets right after they thought awesome of them. These are Jesus' own words. He does say, quite simply, that anyone who desires to live a godly life in Jesus Christ will be persecuted. In the same letters to Timothy, he says, train yourself a godly life. What's a godly life? Is it a moral life? Is it some kind of rule-following life? And I could probably describe it a lot of different ways. I think the best way to describe it is it's a very devout life founded on the love of God and governed by the fear of God, but lived in accordance with the Word of God. That's what a godly life is. And Jesus says, like, man, people aren't going to like that. I've found, I always hope sometimes my family doesn't listen to this, but I'm going to say it anyway, right? Most of my extended family is not believers. And I have found that I don't have to say anything, and yet they accuse me oftentimes of being condemning, of being hateful towards the world. They just assume what I believe or think, I guess, what I believe. It's really shocking how much hatred indifference at times um, accusation can come and I'm not saying anything because they just know I'm a pastor they just know the things I stand for not who I vote for no one knows that what I stand for and we want to be liked but the truth is for those who start living in accordance with God's word it's going to become harder and harder to be liked in this world soon enough I am convinced given enough time, it will be illegal for pastors like myself to say certain things from pulpits without consequence. It's already like that in the world. See, the reality is we have brothers and sisters right now dying for standing up and living according to God's word. For saying that the source of joy, the source of truth in life is in God's word. And they're being killed for that. That may come for us someday. It is happening right now to brothers and sisters in Christ across the world. You can find the stories if you like. We may experience some kind of hatred from the world, maybe accusations, maybe mischaracterizations, maybe just ignored or marginalized, but know that the world's never going to love us, but the temptation will always be for us to love them. And I say them what I'm just talking about is that which is in rebellion against God. Jesus seemed to be really at peace with the world's hatred. 
He seemed to be really at peace with not seeking out the approval of men. You go, why is that? Why is that that he was so at peace? It seemed like he had something very different about him. And I would argue, yes, he does. It's interesting in verse 13, he says he wants the joy that is in him basically to be fulfilled in them. And Paul seems to be very clear that there's a spirit of the world and then there's a spirit who's from God. And the spirit that is of the world doesn't like God's word. Why is that? Well, he says, the natural person, though that who has the spirit of the world, doesn't accept the things of the spirit of God. They're foolish to him. He's not able to understand them because they're spiritually discerned. They don't, they don't know it. They don't like it. They think it's foolish. Jesus had the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, driving him, just as we do, creating in us a hunger, if you will, a desire, if you will, helping us to understand, helping us to know, helping us to see there's something in us by God's grace through faith. The world hates God's word because they don't understand God's word. They don't accept God's word. But we are a different people. For those in Christ, you have a Holy Spirit in you that, guess what? The same spirit that Paul calls in his letter to the Thessalonians, the spirit of, guess what? Joy. He calls it the spirit of joy. The Holy Spirit is the spirit of joy. He's a spirit of joy. Full of joy. Well, I'm a Christian. I have the Holy Spirit. Really? Where's your joy? And what is the primary thing that the Holy Spirit does? He's a teacher. Jesus says he comes to teach you everything that I have said. Okay, so the Holy Spirit brings us to the Word. Bringing us joy. And then Paul says in Romans 8, who is helping us in prayer? The Spirit is interceding for us. And so you see this conjunction happening between the Word and the Spirit and prayer and guess what? Joy. And all these things are coming together as, as we look to what Jesus has said and taught in His Word and the Spirit begins to teach us and enable us to see what He is actually saying and understand and believe joy is created. And you know what happens? It's not just happening for us, if you will. There's something actually happening to us. Look at the last things in this section that Jesus prays. He says, I don't ask you to take them out of the world, these disciples, but that you keep them from the evil one. How are they going to do that? They are not of the world, just as I am of the world. Okay, we know that, Jesus, but what is he saying? Oh, I dropped 17 off again, doggone it. 17 says this, sanctify them in truth. Okay, so he said, protect them from an evil one. They're not of the world. Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. So something's happening as these things work together, as the truth begins to pour into you, as the Spirit begins to help you understand, as joy is created, there's something else happening too. You're being sanctified. You're being sanctified by truth. And Jesus says the truth that we're talking about is the Word of God. Now, there's lots of people that go, what do you mean by truth? Right? That's the big thing right now. Fake news. What's true? I don't know what's true anymore. I don't know what to believe. I don't know what is actually descriptive of what's going on. Well, that's not new. Do you know in 2 Corinthians 11, Paul, this is what I do when people come knocking on my door. Hey, I'm from the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Oh, welcome. Hi, I'm from Jehovah Witnesses. Oh, welcome. Would you like some milk and cookies? Please sit down. Let me get my Bible. And you know what I always start with? With the Jehovah Witnesses, they go, I, we are who represent Jehovah God. I say, oh, fantastic. Is that Jehovah Father, Jehovah Jesus, Jehovah Holy Spirit? 
And with the Church of Jesus Christ, the Mormons, when they come and they say, well, Jesus Christ died for our sins and he rose from the dead, and you're like, oh, wow, that sounds really orthodox. I open up 2 Corinthians 11, and I said, you know, back in the early church, Paul said, there's another Jesus, another gospel, and another spirit. So which one are you worshiping? The one of the Bible or the one you've made up? So fake news has been around for a long time, right? What's the truth? This is the question that Pontius Pilate asked Jesus. As he's being brought before the governor of Judea to potentially be saved, but we all know that that doesn't happen, but he's got the authority to, to save. He goes before Pilate, and they have a conversation. And he says, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, well, are you saying this on your own idea, or did someone tell you? Right? Pilate answered, am I a Jew? Look, I'm a Roman dude. Like, your own nation, your own people, your leaders, they've given you over to me to, to kill you. So what did you do? What have you done? So Jesus says, here's what I've done. My kingdom's not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting. That I might not be delivered over the Jews, but my kingdom's not of this world. So Pilate's listening. Kingdom. It's a lot of kingdom talk. You must be a king. Ha ha ha! So you're a king. And Jesus answered, well, you say I'm a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I've come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Now he's already said what the truth is, right? Everyone who's of the truth listens to my voice. And Pilate says, what's truth? What's truth? Truth is what we make it. Truth is what we want it to be. Truth is not just truth. Well, Jesus has already answered the question in the prayer he prayed before going before Pilate, he said, God's word is truth. So you go, well, what does that even mean? That's a very big term. Truth sounds so philosophical. So let's just kind of make it like plain language. Truth is what accords with fact or reality regardless of perspective. Truth describes that which is constant and unchangeable. Truth describes what is accurate or what is right. Truth is what is reliable and what is enduring. Now the truth of God, the word of God, the scriptures breathed out by God, Jesus' words, that describes them perfectly. Yes, inspired. Yes, living and active. And all these other things. Jesus had a lot to say about the truth. Jesus described himself as the truth. He said, I am the truth. Jesus said he was full of truth. He was described having told the truth, revealed the truth, to be the way of truth. He said we must worship in spirit and in truth. And now he says here with Pilate, I have come to bear witness of the truth. Jesus embodied and revealed the truth about God, about us, about the world. He is the truth. And the truth, he says, is what he's praying that will be used to sanctify these disciples, to protect them. And sanctification is the idea of separation. It is not Remember, he prays, don't take them out of the world. So it's not, let's go hide out in our little Christian club over here, away from the world. He says, no. Next week, you see, he says, I want them in the world, sent into the world, staying in the world, sanctified by truth. A people who have a different spirit and a different joy and a different and actually the truth to live by and accord with. They were to be set apart. And Jesus taught, if you abide in my word and the truth, you will know the truth. And what will happen? The truth will set you free. And you know what freedom is? Freedom is sanctification. You know what sanctification is? 
being restored to how God designed you to be. And that's joyful. Sanctification is, is not this thing that, that um, just I'm separated for God. That, that's where it begins. But sanctification is this constant renovation process. And you know what? Imagine an arm not working. And suddenly it does. That's spiritually what happens as the truth begins to, to shape you and the truth begins to fill you. Suddenly things start working. And it's a joy to have your arms and legs working. It's a joy to have things functioning the way they should be. It's a joy to have marriages that are, that are life-giving and not life-robbing. Relationships and jobs and all these things because they're now governed by God's truth. And you're experiencing the joy of what restoration brings. So do you see how this all works, right? As we abide in God's word, God's love for us causes us to love him. Doesn't work the other way around. And, and then as we begin to obey God's word in response, because we want more of it, we see that this is God's promise to us. This is, this is God's loving gift to us. The spirit of truth begins to free us from the power of sin and we begin to be not just guarded and protected from the lies of the enemy but actually restored to who we're supposed to be and as we live as those people in the world we're not going to be like because we're going to look different but we don't care because we're not going to be governed by how the world changes all the time <clears throat> and our circumstances change we are now governed by the unchanging truth of God who never changes so to bring it full circle, what does snarf does that have to do with prayer? Good question. I'll tell you what snarf means later. Morning and evening prayer. What does that have to do with morning and evening prayer? Well, I think Jesus tells us something really important right before he prays this in John 16. I hope I have it. Let's see. I skipped. There we go. Yeah. Okay, so this is right before he, he's told his disciples, I'm going to leave, I'm going to die, the world's going to hate you, <clears throat> don't worry, I've overcome the world, right? Here's what he says, truly I say to you, you will weep and lament. So he's saying, it's going to get sad, dudes, it's going to get sad. See, the world's going to rejoice over his death. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy, resurrection coming. It's like when a woman's giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she's delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. It keeps going, though. So also, you have sorrow now. I know you guys are sad. I told you I'm leaving. But I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. Catch this. In that day, so this is after it's all done. They don't fully see what that means. In that day, you will ask nothing of me because he won't be there white with him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you've asked nothing in my name. Ask. You say, what's that mean? Pray. Pray and you will receive. Why? That your joy may be full. Okay, here we go. Ready? What shall we pray? Right? The temptation is to go, okay, maybe I'll just pray for joy. Make me feel joyful! I want joy right now! Maybe it will be, ah, if I have that, I'll be joyful. I'm going to pray for that. Give me that. Don't let me lose that. Change that. Nope. That's not what we should pray. If we're taking Jesus' example for what it is, we should ask him to give us hunger for the source of joy he's revealed. We should ask him to captivate us with something more beautiful than the words of the world. We should ask him and pray that he will compel us 
to love what is true. Okay, let me just simplify that. There's many of us who don't crack a Bible because we don't think there's joy to be found there. We find joy in lots of other things. And they're good things. They're not bad things. But they don't provide the kind of joy promised from the Word. But you go, but I don't feel it. I don't want it. Excellent. Pray for it. Pray for that. Pray that God will change your heart. Pray that God will give you the desire. Pray that God will give you the hunger. That's what the psalmist does. Where we started in Psalm 119, right? And I told the elders, I'm like, look, I think I'm going to just stand up and read all of Psalm 119. And they're like, let's do it. And I'm like, gee, it's 176 verses. I was still tempted to do it. But I'm just going to go through a smattering of them as a prayer. I want to challenge you, maybe encourage you to pray for the things that the psalmist prays in Psalm 119. You know what Psalm 119 is all about? God's Word. It's all about His Word. But it's interesting because these psalmists, these, these songs in the psalms, they're, they're, they're like prayers because they're directed towards God. You ever prayed a psalm back to God? Pray His own words back to Him? I encourage you to do that. Consider how we should pray. I'm, just gonna, I'm not going to go through all 176, I promise. But a sprinkling. I'll just start with the first five, and then a sprinkling. This is to set the stage. Psalm 119, blessed. If you have the CSB or a couple other translations, you know what they translate that word as? Happy. Happy are those. Whoa, whoa, happy are those at what? His ways blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Happy are those who keep his testimonies. Really? I don't know if I believe that. Well, then pray that the Lord will help your unbelief. Happy are those who seek him with their whole heart. Happy are those who also do no wrong, do no wrong but walk in his ways. You have commanded your precepts to be kept diligently. Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes because I so want that kind of happiness. But consider what else he prays. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me. When's the last time you prayed that? Teach me. I will meditate on your precepts. Fix my eyes on your ways. Open my eyes, right? You ever been confused, uncertain what to do? Don't even know what to read, what you read, don't understand? Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. Who doesn't want to look at wondrous things? Your testimonies are my delight. They are my counselors. You ever prayed this? My soul clings to the dust. You ever thought that? I'm sure there are people in here who right now feel like their soul is clinging to the dust. And that's not a good feeling. That's like a deep, ugh. What does he say? Give me life according to your word. My soul melts away for sorrow. Have you, feel that? Have you felt that? Strengthen me according to your word. I will run in the way of your commandments. When? When you enlarge my heart. My heart, I can't fit and I got a Grinch little heart. I need it bigger. I need it fuller. And I will run after your commandments when you enlarge it, but I can't do that, God. Incline my heart, because it's so prone to wander. Incline my heart to your testimonies and not to selfish gain. You are good, and you do good. Teach me your statutes. Your hands have made and fashioned me. Give me understanding that I may learn your commandments. 
and your steadfast love give me life. Why? That I may keep the testimonies of your mouth. Deal with your servant according to your steadfast love. Teach me your statutes. Let my cry come before you, O Lord. Give me understanding according to your word. Let my plea come before you. Deliver me according to your word. Let my soul live and praise you and let your rules help me. What shall we pray every morning and evening? Lord, give me a hunger for your word. Captivate me by your word. Teach me your word. Give me life according to your word. Strengthen me in your word. Rejoice. Give me joy in your word. That's what we pray. And Jesus says, I will answer that prayer. You don't need to fight for joy. It's usually a lost cause. I would simply ask for God to give you an affection and a hunger for his word, and you will find the joy produced from within. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just praise you for who you are. But more than anything, Lord, we thank you for not abandoning us and leaving us to ourselves to follow the ways that we think are right in our own eyes because they're not. Thank you for your word. I thank you that your word gives life. I thank you that your word gives strength. I thank you that your word lifts us, Father, when we are down, comforts us when we are sorrowful, and gives us hope when we are despairing. It gives us understanding, Lord, to understand what is going on in this world. It gives us discernment and lights our paths. Father, I pray you'll give this church an affection and a hunger and a love for your word. I pray that, Lord, because uh, I want joy. And if Jesus' life is is, is an example to us, It seems to be the thing that was most important to him was your word. So Lord, help the truth be something that we pursue. Help the truth be something that we savor. But we recognize, Lord, we can only understand and know the truth by your spirit. So we pray, Holy Spirit, that you will help us to see what we don't see now. Help us to desire what we don't desire now. And help us to live in accordance with all that you've taught. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.